This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox, Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We are bringing you the very best of book talk. We're coming to you directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you, and we want to answer your questions, so send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to at Pub Weekly Radio, that's Pub Weekly Radio, P-U-B-W-K-L-Y Radio. Today we'll be talking with Lee Woodruff, author of the novel Those We Love Most, which is just out in paperback. And then PW Children's Book Reviews editor John Sellers will give us a call from Italy, where the 50th annual Bologna Children's Book Fair is underway. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So, Rose, uh... We'll talk a little bit about fiction. What do you see on the fiction list? So uh, debuting at number one, uh, number one with a bullet, as they say, is Six Years by Harlan Coben. Uh, obviously, he's a, he's a best-selling thriller author. He's definitely been around for quite a while. And this particular book is one that the Publishers Weekly Review called Kafkaesque. Uh, again, the novel is called Six Years. Mm. And uh, he, it, the six years are the time between uh, when a guy promises uh, the love of his life that he's going to leave her alone. You know, she'll get married to some other guy and he'll, he'll you know, just turn his back and never bother her again. And the time when he finds out that her husband has died. And so he thinks, yeah, you know, maybe this is his chance, except it turns out that the dead man's widow is not the same woman. And oh. maybe they didn't get married after all. And what's going on? And as soon as he tries to track her down, he starts finding out that the place they supposedly met never even existed. And uh, it gets wow. twistier. And we, uh, the review says that this ranks among his strangest and most ingenious plots. Uh, so there are a lot of secrets and a trail of violence and labyrinthine deception. Now, uh, with with Harlan Coben, mm -hmm. what else is he known for? Is is he known for this kind of writing? Yeah, this is what he does, and he yeah. does it very well. He's definitely got a, a big fan base, which is you know, what you need if you want your book to debut at number one. Right. Uh, as soon as people see his name, they go out and they buy it, mm -hmm. and you know, they they pick up this twenty eight dollar hardcover because they don't right. want to wait to find out you know how the how the latest twisty thriller goes. So he's uh, he he definitely knows what his readers want and uh, how to provide it. It's very. He's one of those very consistent, reliable authors. And coming in at 400 pages, uh, his his readers will have quite a bit to sink their uh, teeths into. Absolutely, though I think this is one of those one of those books that goes very quickly. You know, even as you're trying to figure out what's going on, it, it's a it's a page turner. Right, you know, right, you just right. you just plow through it. If you start reading it at 10 o'clock, you're not going to go to bed until you finish it. And right. So it's uh, that's always the peril with something like this. Yeah. Sure. Sure. And uh, do we have anything else? Oh, yeah. There's actually a couple of interesting right. things on the fiction list. Uh, at number 11 on the main list is uh, Greg Bear's Halo Silentium. Now, Halo is a video game. Uh, it's actually a, a really popular video right. game. And one of the most interesting things that's been done with it is that uh, the creators of the game went out and found a lot of really top-notch science fiction authors to write books in this universe. So... 
I I had a favorite author, Eric Nyland, who I you know, I really loved his right. books back in the '90s, and then he kind of disappeared. And I thought, does he stop writing? No, it turned out he was writing Halo books. And so they have they have these authors, you know, Greg Bear, Eric Nyland, uh, I think Tobias Buckel did a, a couple of books for them um, that are genuinely good science fiction that just happen to be set in this in this tie-in universe. And I just I felt I felt I should mention it because I think tie-in books get a bad rap sometimes. You know, Star Trek books or Star sure. Wars books, you look at them and you think eh, that's kind of rubbish. Right. Um, but these are these are really good writers who know what they're doing. And just because they're writing in a shared universe doesn't mean the books are automatically bad. Right. Sure. And it, it sounds by the by the uh, names that these are some pretty well respected writers, and that's mm-hmm. something that they might actually enjoy doing oh uh, yeah oh yeah. i'm sure they do i think it can be a lot of fun writing this sort of authorized fan fiction right yeah you know, you, right. you you don't have to do all the hard work of building the world and uh and you can just you can just play around in somebody else's playground and right. and that can that can be a good time and obviously you know here it is debuting at number 11 on our bestseller list i i think uh, that that means people are enjoying it readers are enjoying it I, that's pretty impressive also that this is this is a video game that that is you know, kind of spurred all these uh, uh, novels or, or these these works of fiction based on it. Mm-hmm. Well, video game storytelling has really gotten extraordinarily elaborate. I mean, these are these are games with a lot of choices that you can make. And so, it, think of those choose your own adventure books that you used to read. Except you know, in this case, you're you're almost getting to live it through the right. the video game character that you're taking around through these puzzles and through action scenes. And it gets extremely involved. It's almost like getting to star in your own little science fiction movie. And mm-hmm. so there's plenty of material there to to base something on. I mean, this isn't like Donkey Kong the movie. You know, they're they're extraordinarily advanced, and uh, there's there's definitely a lot to work with. Wow, it's fascinating. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We are giving you a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. There was one other book on the fiction list that I wanted to mention. This one's a little further down, uh, debuting at number forty. That's four zero, but uh, we gave it a starred review, and I, I felt it was worth highlighting. Uh, it's Mary Coyne, but and the author is Marissa Silver. It's Marissa with one S, and um, this is about three characters whose lives span ninety years. Uh, there's a, a historian who discovers a family link to a famous photograph. Uh, taken by one woman of another, and the woman in the photograph is named Mary Coyne. And so uh, the historian, Walker Dodge, slowly fills in the story uh, as as he comes to understand both the woman in the photograph and the woman who took the picture. Mm-hmm. And the Publishers Weekly Review says, this narrative of mid-century hope, loss, and disenchantment is both universal and deeply personal, and we called it sensual and rich. Oh, fantastic. So so for fans of historical fiction, especially Depression-era historical fiction, which I think uh, is maybe gaining a little bit in popularity and not so much necessarily the, the, the Tudor England or Regency England, but looking at, at America's history through that historical fiction lens now that we're you know almost right. 100 years out from the Depression, we can do that. Sure. Yeah, I guess that's true. I hadn't really thought much of Depression era, uh, uh, you know, novels set in Depression era. And you know, we have talked about Regency and Tudor. And also we had a guest on our show three weeks ago who was uh, late uh, 19th century mm-hmm. uh, uh, African-American literature and, and, and using that. And you're right, we're pretty far out from from the, uh, the Depression to talk about it. So do you see 
there's a growing number of titles in there? I, I think there might be. I mean, historical fiction yeah. is is not a genre I know a tremendous amount about, but I've started to see it coming up uh, within fantasy and science fiction, actually. Um, there's an author, Robert Jackson Bennett, who does wonderful books set in the early 20th century. Uh, right. He did a horror novel about the Depression that really brings it home right. uh, and, and also talks about uh, his, his latest book is set in the present day, but it's set in a town that's trying to make it still be the 1950s. Mm. Oh, wow. And, and so I, I think it's interesting that as we get some distance from the early part of the 20th century, we can, we can look at it and examine it in this particular way without being mm. quite so emotionally entangled with it as we might be if, say, we were looking at the 1990s. Sure. And I have to say, Rose, you know, with this book, uh, Mary Cohen, I, I'm really glad that you did peek down to number 40 because, you know, we, we often talk about the top 10, top five, you know, maybe mm-hmm. top 20, but it's, it's, it's really hard to get on a bestseller list. And it's really worth noting when something does, especially something we've starred in. You know, when, when, when we look at these reviews that come in or look at the books, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to see something that may, you know, may not already have a big publicity push behind it kind of make it on the list. Yeah. No, I, I, think, I think it's always interesting. I pretty much look for whatever's new on the list. Right. And um, I'm always curious what really makes it from, a, from that standing start. Uh, what what gets out there in the stores and people pick it up and think, yeah, this, mm-hmm. this is what I want. Uh, maybe for a well-known author like Harlan Coben or maybe for a relatively new author like Silver, this is only her third novel. Right. Uh, and, and I think it's interesting to watch an author's trajectory that yeah, way. Yeah, sure. Right. Exactly. It's and, true. It's and see true. how it goes. I'm Mark Rotella and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And we're talking about bestsellers uh, uh, powered by Nielsen Book Scan. Uh, Rose has just talked to us about some fiction. And looking at the nonfiction, we're, we're going to look at a book that has just uh, jumped to number one, which, which is Shel uh, Sandberg's Lean In, Women, Work, and the Will to Lead. Uh, she's writing with Neil Scovel. And this is by uh, Facebook COO Sandberg, who examines the dearth of women in major leadership positions and what women could do to solve the problem. Uh, and this is a book that, uh, for now, a couple of weeks has gotten a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And, and here it is at number one, as, as I think we suspected it would. Yeah. I think yeah. we, we saw that we saw this coming last week. We can say we called it, but really this was not too challenging. Sure, a bit right. of a exactly. crystal ball prediction here. Right. Um, everybody's talking about this book and that kind of controversy is always going to drive sales. Right. Exactly. And we say in the review, the author's counsel gleaned from her own experiences. You know, she's, she's talking about her own experiences, includes suggestions for increasing self-confidence, particularly in the business world and understanding the role of mentors and how to identify them. She says hard work and results should be recognized by others, but when they aren't, advocating one for oneself becomes necessary. And, sure. And I think that's true. And, and I think her argument is that women have traditionally not done that. I mean, I, I think it's interesting to, to basically phrase this as women are powerless. Here's how they have the power to change that. Mm. And I, I think, I think it's, I think the, this sort of thing is always very complicated. The interactions between women and men, uh, in, in the workplace and outside of it are complex. Sure. And I, I think you know, it's on the one hand, it's great to see someone talking about, you know, women go after your goals and um, on the other hand, I, I think that this is not necessarily a, a fight that women can fight on their own. So yeah. I, I, I would say everybody needs to take it as a goal to 
to diversify leadership particularly I mean, and along along many axes not just gender so this this is you know maybe a book not just for women readers it's for anyone i think mm -hmm. absolutely yeah. Great. What else is on the nonfiction list? Well, we have at uh, number 14, uh, uh, Brene Brown's Daring Greatly. This is how the courage to be vulnerable transforms the way we live, love, parent, and lead. Now, she's the author of The Gifts of Imperfection. And here she examines uh, the vulnerability and the imperfection. Uh, uh, and and she's, she herself is a research professor at the University of Houston Graduate College. And she posits that daring to fail is the only true way to be wholeheartedly engaged in any aspect of life. So this is kind of a, a self-help book. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's uh, jumped on the list at number uh, 14. Oh, that's interesting. I, I think we don't hear much talk about vulnerability as a positive thing. Oh, this is true. This so is true. I'm, I think, I think this, is, this sounds sort of like the gift of fear, maybe, you know, talking right. about the, the ways that our, our mental wiring can be of use. Right, exactly. And perhaps by, by just kind of uh, acknowledging maybe our, our faults or just by accepting uh, our failures or whatever they may be, we learn from them and, and grow from there. Mm -hmm. So this... It's a it's an interesting book. Now, uh, we also have some kids and uh, uh, YA books on the list. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Cassandra Clare's Clockwork Princess. And this again debuts at number one on the children's and YA list, yeah. and this caught my eye because I've been seeing her name around a lot at the moment. She's on a bus tour. Oh, and this is something that authors don't do very much anymore. No, they tend to right. fly from place to place, um, but no, she uh, she worked with her publishers to get a tour bus, and it's blazoned with her title. You know, in big, big letters on the side of it, and you know, you know a bit of the cover art. Really, it's it's a piece of work. Wow! And where is she touring? Do we know? Um, I, you know, I in don't the know. US. I don't know what all the tour stops are. It is in yeah. the U.S. Yeah. Um, but she's been joined by a couple of other uh, YA authors. Uh, Maureen Johnson came along for a bit, and right. Sarah Reese Brennan, who's an Irish author, who's uh, got a very popular couple of books out right now. And um, the three of them are all social media superstars right, right. they they uh, they burn up twitter and they burn up mm. tumblr and they they know exactly what they're doing and cassandra clare actually got her start uh blogging before she uh, and writing fan fiction before she started writing her own original work so oh, they kidding. they know how to yeah. work the crowds and sure. i just love the idea of them packing their stuff onto this bus and going trucking around yeah, have, having a blast and meeting their readers and, and doing that cross-country drive. Yeah, and it's pretty fascinating to see when authors come up, whether you know she came up with this herself or whether the publicist and publisher did, but coming up with new ways to really get the book and, and your name out there. Obviously, she already has a what we call a platform, but, yeah. but this is a wonderful way of doing it and to have people follow her, especially what seems to be her, her many uh, Twitter uh, followers mm -hmm. can, can follow the bus and, and uh, it's kind of like uh, a rock show in ways. And I remember a conversation we had with Paul Eli uh, a few weeks back about his book on Bach. And, and he talked about, uh, as he's you know, writing this book on music, going to these bookstores and seeing how famous you know, big-name musicians who have their memoirs out are packing the houses. And this kind of has that feel of, of one of those you know, old-time you know, rock and roll tour bus show. Absolutely. And there probably are a few diehard fans who are just following them around. Yeah, sure, right? How wonderful I'm, is that? What a trip. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
Next up, author Lee Woodruff is going to tell us about making the shift from nonfiction to fiction writing, even though she says she's actually always been a novelist in her heart. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got author Lee Woodruff on the line. She's the best-selling author of Those We Love Most, which came out last year and is now out in paperback. Thanks for joining us, Lee. Thanks for having me on, guys. So you're the author of uh, some nonfiction books, and you're also a contributing editor to CBS this morning. So fiction is a little bit of a departure for you. What made you decide to write a novel? It's so funny uh, when I get asked that question because all of my life I saw myself as a fiction writer. So the fact that I wrote two nonfiction books first still kind of stuns me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think if you told me 10 years ago that my first book would be a memoir and that it would sell, you know, very well, I would have laughed at you. I would have thought, who would ever want to read about my life? And (laughs) that's certainly a testament to where life takes us and how little we have control of the script. But... I think the the coming out of a novel was something that, boy, I wished I'd started way earlier in life, uh, but it's something that I've always wanted to do, and I have a million stories inside my head. If you don't mind me asking, if it's not too personal a question, how old were you when you started working on the novel? Because I know we have a lot of listeners who are aspiring novelists who might think it's too late. I'm kind of thinking that Google has made that whole thing of a woman hiding her age completely obsolete. Don't you think so? <laughs> That's true. We could just look up your Wikipedia article. And you could go see. You could find out that, yes, in fact, I was really born in 1960. So I'm um, almost 53, and I started this book, gosh, came out a year ago. It took three years to write because I set it down for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that sort of year of, of the publishing cycle, which feels like an eternity from the time you turn it in. So I guess I wrote it in my late 40s, but I, I actually, it's a great question because when I um, talk to people in book uh, book clubs or in my book talk, I always say, there is no, you know, there's no deadline, there's no expiration date on any of this stuff. You know, I, my first novel came out when I was 50, and that's, mm. you know, if I can do it, anyone can do it. And tell us a little bit about the, the plot of the novel. The plot of the novel is, and it took me a, a long time to get this elevator pitch down, guys, because when I was first writing it, and friends would say, what are you working on? And I would start to try to encapsulate it by starting with um, the bad thing that happens in the beginning of the book. And you, ca- you can't get around the fact that in this book, it begins with an accident. And a 17-year-old boy is driving a car and hits a little boy. And... I would say that initially when I was talking to to friends, and they would say, "Okay, I'm out. You know, I can't, I cannot read a book where a child, you know, dies or gets hurt or any of that." And my answer to that was really, "You never meet the boy. He is he's the catalyst, really, for sort of that bad thing that, or the the unexpected sudden thing that happens. Really, when you live long enough, all of us are going to bump up against the challenges in life, and oftentimes it's the it's really where the rubber meets the road in a family. So the bad thing often cracks everybody open. And then that allows us to look at the fault lines and where strengths lie and the resilience in people. And that's really the part of humankind that I'm so I'm so enthralled with, um, having had our own experience, which was the, the reason the first book was written, when my husband was injured in Iraq and really, you know, came close to death, closer than 
he should not be alive, frankly. And then the ability to kind of come back from that, to watch people around us, to watch our family, to watch the people that came into the void to help was a remarkable experience. If you look for the silver lining in the bad thing, being witness to that, being in the center of all of that um, gave me this experience. And then taking all of that and going forth and Bob and I started the Bob Woodruff Foundation, which helps um, injured veterans returning from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And we've had the amazing privilege to get to know many of these families over the last six years since we sort of stepped back out after Bob healed. And people recover from incredible things. I mean, I have been so amazed and touched and honored to see kind of the resilience of the human spirit. So in the end, that's what the book is about. And of course, when things are broken open, secrets come out, and the book is really told from two two generations. So there goes between three points of view, the, the mother of the little boy who dies, the grandmother and the grandfather, and every one of them has a, a secret somewhere. And those secrets will be dealt with in different ways. And it's also looking kind of at marriage and the fact that everything new ultimately gets old. So sometimes it's a question really of whether or not you just simply choose to stay and, you know, put your shoulder into something or if you decide to blow something up. And so each of the marriages will have to make different choices, too, and I won't tell you how that ends up. I'm Mark Rotellin. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with the author, Lee Woodruff, about her novel, Those We Love Most, just out in paperback. And your novel is set in Chicago. And uh, you've already said this is the saga revolving the uh, uh, revolving around the death of a child, which which uh, it, it seems you know might be perhaps influenced by the circumstances that you and your husband endured of, you know, obviously not a death, but a really tragic one or, or, a, or a very difficult one. How, how did you end up as a novelist? And I, I don't know where you're from. I know you live in the East coast, set it in, in, in Chicago. And how did you come up with the plot? And, well, we, um, as a wife of a journalist, we've moved many times. So in one of our one of our lives, uh, we lived in the North Shore in Chicago for only a year. And it was actually a wonderful, I love the city, love the sweet little town that we lived in. So their town, which doesn't even have a name in the book, it's a fictitious town on the North Shore. But I could, I used a lot of the settings of those sort of, you know, train, train stop towns, commuter beautiful mm-hmm. towns on the lake um, to create the setting. And I wanted it to be in a place that was sort of in the middle of the country. I wanted it to be in sort of every place, although there's no question it's an affluent town. Um, and, and, you know, there there are people there that belong to country clubs. It's kind of a the Midwestern John Cheever set in a way without so many martinis. Sure. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> right. um, you know, it is, it's a t- I really struggled with how to, how to, you know, work around the fact that, you know, it's a book where someone, you know, the, the child dies. But um, I think by setting it in this place, in this community, and the family is, is very Catholic, um, and not being Catholic, I always wanted to be Catholic. I always was covetous of my friends who had all these saints and these saint mm-hmm. necklaces, and they got to light candles, and their wafer it got to really be the body of Christ and all these things. So I, <laughs> I had a couple of priest friends sort of, you know, coaching me on the on the, the Catholic and and uh, the sort of religious aspect of it as well. But Colson Whitehead, the writer, said something sure. that I've always remembered once. I read something he wrote, which said, don't go looking for your story. Your story will find you. And this story found me. And I can picture exactly where I was in a hotel room in Kansas City. My phone rang. It was a friend one town over from me, and we live in Westchester County outside of New York City. Mm-hmm. And her son's friend had been driving a car. He was 17 years old. And he had hit uh, a child. 
And the child was in the hospital. The child had a brain injury, and the parents were desperate to talk to me. They knew that she knew me, and I've sort of become this lightning rod for people. Anybody who knows somebody who's had a traumatic brain injury, I'm so happy to be that person on the other end of the line. And I walked. She said, could you please call them? And I said, absolutely. Let me just go down and deliver this talk, and uh, here's my cell phone. And I shut the door of the hotel, and I thought, oh, my goodness. My son was, at the time, 17, so I think that's why that resonated so much right. with me. I mm-hmm. thought, right. holy goodness, it's the rock that got tossed into the, the water, the pebble. What about that little boy? What about his mother? What about the 17-year-old boy? He's probably looking at colleges with his mom, as I'm doing with my son. Uh-huh. But what happens to him? Does he even, does he, you know, you have two choices, I suppose, when you take a life, especially that young, unintentionally. Do you have your Laura Bush moment? which, you know, I was always fascinated with the fact that Laura Bush had inadvertently killed a classmate by just rolling through a stop sign at something like age 16 or 17. So do you then go out and try to take the stage of your life and live twice as much because you've taken a life? Or do you just kind of go to the local bar and decide that your life isn't worth anything because you have taken a life? And I really had to make a decision about what happened to Alex, the 17-year-old boy in in the novel. And, um, I set the book down for a year because I wasn't sure it was very good, and I didn't know where Alex was going. And then I finally figured it out and just sort of finished the book. But the story really was based on only the barest outlines of a true story. And in the real-life story, I'm happy to report the child has recovered and is doing 100% beautifully. Oh, that's wonderful. We say in our review of our book that your uh, deft navigation of emotionally troubled territory makes this a riveting and heartfelt read. Uh, that's our PW review. And you write about family and parenting for various magazines. Does one form of writing inform the other? Boy, that's a great question. You know, I, I have a lot of fun exercising my muscles in all different genres. And um, this was a really serious novel in the sense mm-hmm. that there there aren't, you know, it's not a tongue-in-cheek novel at all. In my second book, Perfectly Imperfect, which is a book of essays, mm-hmm. some of those are, are meant to be pure humor. And uh, on my website, which is just leewoodruff.com, I write blogs, and some of those are, are absolutely humorous and satirical. And I find that being able to rotate around the various different forms really is sort of like flexing muscles in many ways. Right. And I think one does inform the other. I think you become a better writer by using them all. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, where we're talking with author Lee Woodruff, uh, the author of Those We Love Most, about writing about family. And actually, we were just going to ask you about Perfectly Imperfect. Um, curious, how, how was it turning a sort of journalistic eye on your own family after having reported on the lives of others and also created this fictional family for your novel? I loved writing Perfectly Imperfect, actually. It was, um, I loved the short form, the essay form, the sort of, you know, following in the, don't I wish, steps of Nora Ephron, but just the ability to kind of kind of come full circle in an essay, I really, really love. And um, Perfectly Imperfect really grew out of the first book in an instant, which was Bob's in my story. It's really a love story. It's the story of a marriage and, and a recovery. And that was really never intended as a book. Um, as a writer, I just had to get my hands on my laptop when Bob was injured, and he was in a coma for five weeks. So during those five weeks, when someone is in a coma, you're told to talk to them, you know, to just Mm -hmm. sort of keep connecting those wires in the brain. And even though though they can't respond, somewhere in there, they're, they're hearing you, and they're piecing it back together. So I just started writing about what was happening in the hospital, and, and as I was with him, I would tell him the story of our life. And those two things became 
something that I would go home to the, to the hotel room and just write what had happened that day because it was really the only thing about my day that I could control was to just write mm-hmm. what I'd seen and what was happening. And I hope that Bob would wake up and he would want to know as a journalist what had happened and I wouldn't have any idea because life in an ICU is so crazy. So I just kept writing. And when the book came out, a lot of great stories had to be cut on the editing room floor to be able to keep to the story. Right. And, and Random House said, you know, what do you want to do next? And that was a lot of the great, both humorous and somewhat poignant stories of my life that were cut away from the first book. So that was a really fun project. Wow. And I, I have to ask, I mean, after uh, you know, Bob came out of his coma, after you've been telling these stories, did you ever ask him if he, if he remembered any of these or even if there was something that, that he might recall or have recalled later? I'm just curious. Mark, you can bet your sweet bippy that I asked, and I will tell you that the answer was a total goose egg. Okay, nothing. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> totally nothing. And I'll tell you a funny story because we okay. had a lot of wonderful letters and cards and gifts and things. And one of them was a box from Bruce Springsteen, who uh, was an admirer of Bob's work, and mm. wrote a note and said, "You know, when you get better, you know, come to a concert and and backstage, I'd, I'd love to meet you and and your wife." And so I took the letter, as one can do when one's loved ones. <laughs> in a coma and switch it around a little bit because he's never going to remember, but he's in a coma. And I said, honey, look at this. Bruce Springsteen wrote you a note and said, if you wake up, he'll come down here and play for you and the other soldiers in the hospital. So what do you think the one thing he remembers? Oh, yeah, that's right. Not I love you or you're going to be better or I'm here for you, baby. No. He woke up, and day three, he was asking for a guitar. And when we asked him why, he said, because i got to get ready to play for that boss man when he comes. <laughs> <laughs> so did it happen? And I said, ruh-roh, ruh because that boss man ain't coming. But I thought, are you kidding me? That was what you remembered? Not all of those, you know, protestations of love and... Careful is my is my advice to you guys. Good advice. I'll always be honest to someone, even if they're comatose. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'm Mark Rattel, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking right now with author Lee Woodruff. Uh, her n- novel uh, just out in paperback. Those we love most. And I would, you know, we've talked, we've spoken a little bit about Bob, and uh, I, I do want to talk a little bit about that first book in an instant, which PW gave a starred review to, and this is about the injuries your husband, Bob Woodruff, suffered uh, from a roadside bomb in Iraq in, I believe it was January of 2006. And you had mentioned that this book was really not meant to be a book, but how did, what was the thinking behind this, and how did it become a book? Well, I just kept writing, and I guess one of the things I didn't say earlier when you were asking me about how did it feel to turn the lens on myself, I had been doing that for many years um, as a mm-hmm. as a magazine writer. Mm-hmm. So I had published a number of essays in, in mostly women's magazines or mm-hmm. things like Parenting and Health and some of the service uh, magazines. And so I had always kind of figured out where the line was in being able to talk about your family and share information without you know crossing that line. And... In, I guess, various places in my life, the diagnosis of one of our daughters who who was severely hearing impaired or when Bob was embedded during the invasion Mm -hmm. of the war 10 years ago, people would ask a lot of questions on email. So I had gotten into a habit of just sending out group emails, especially when we were living overseas. And those would get sent sort of around the world. So when this Mm -hmm. had all happened to Bob and he'd been injured, people knew that I was a writer and they knew from some of these missives that they had read um, that I had the the chops, I guess, to write. So we were just point blank approached by friends in the publishing industry saying we'd really love 
you know, if you could write a book. And I said, mm, well, actually, I happen to have this 900-page manuscript that we're working on. Uh, <laughs> what a coincidence. Literally. And uh, have not really thought about it. I actually, that's, that's not completely true because it was actually Bob's neurosurgeon in Bethesda Naval Hospital who said to me at one point during Bob's coma, I understand that you're a writer, Mrs. Woodruff, and someone needs to write a book about this issue because there are thousands and thousands of young men and women who have cycled through these military hospitals in Washington, and nobody out there knows anything about these head injuries. And mm-hmm. that did stay with me because I thought we have a pulpit. We have a moment here to use our story to not only educate the public, but to put a story out there about, about head injury. And, and for all of those millions and millions of civilians who live with this injury, whether it's from falls or concussions or domestic violence or strokes, there really weren't a lot of books out there that could sort of show people that, that other people go through this. And then you and your husband started the Bob Woodruff Foundation, um, which is also there to assist wounded servicemen. So is, is that focusing specifically on brain injury or is it just more, more general? You know, it's, we, it's really broadened to cover those who have been injured in the war. And, and there are actually less than 2,000 amputees in this war, but, but more than 360,000 brain injuries. And, and wow. in that definition, we include post-traumatic stress, combat mm-hmm. stress, a lot of the suicides that you see uh, and you read about in the news, 22 a day right now. Yeah. Um, that's all from the mental trauma. And we put that all in the basket of a brain injury. And tell me a little bit more about the foundation. How, how does it work? We sort of use our story and our voice to talk about the issue and to bring awareness. And so we raise dollars. And um, to date, in the last almost six years of having the foundation up and running, we've given away $15 million. And what wow. we do is we look for small grassroots groups around the country that are helping veterans in their hometowns, which is literally where they need the help. Mm-hmm. And what's been nice about being a, um investing organization or a granting organization is that the issues have changed as the war has matured. So initially, if troops needed supplies and letters and love, you know, eight years ago, then it began to turn into rehabilitation. And then it was um, you know, dollars for retrofitting homes beyond what the VA was capable of supplying. And now it's really things like reemployment and training when someone can't go back to the service or suicide prevention and mental health issues. And because we're not a bricks and mortar, you know, married to one particular aspect of serving the vets, we can move the lens around and move the dollars to where they need to go as the needs evolve. Wow, that sounds wonderful. Now, I, I have to ask, uh, what's next for Lee Woodruff? Uh, is it going to be another novel or, or maybe another long uh, piece of nonfiction? I had to get away from the, you know, something tied close to my life. Because even on this book tour, I still am answering and maybe always will answer questions about Bob in the first book. And is this right. you? And is this based on your trauma? And no one writes a book without having it tied back to some aspect of themselves. And certainly I understood grief and I understood, um, you know, families coming together and all of that. And so your beautiful words and your kind words that you uh, wrote at PW about the review of the book were, were really based on, you know, sort of firsthand knowledge. But this next novel that I'm working on is going to be much lighter. It's going to be a more satirical, you're going to sort of see my tongue-in-cheek, my more Tina Fey side of life with this book. Excellent. Well, we've been talking with best-selling author Lee Woodruff, and you can find her novel, Those We Love Most, in stores right now, out in paperback. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. I've loved talking to you all. Thanks for having me on.
Absolutely. Great. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. This is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Children's Book Review's editor John Sellers will call us from Italy to report on the Bologna Children's Book Fair. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today Children's Book Reviews editor John Sellers is calling us all the way from Italy to tell us about the Bologna Children's Book Fair. Hi, John. Hi, guys. How's it going? Wow, you sound like you are right here. I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> all the way from Italy. <laughs> all the way from Italy. Um, so tell us a little bit what it's like in Bologna right now. Um, well, not to make you uh, too jealous, or at least to, to kind oh, of... Oh, no, please make us it jealous. It is Bologna, Italy, and it is beautiful, but <laughs> it's been very cold and rainy all week, so you don't have to, you know, get too upset. Now, um, there's no flooding yeah, yet. There's no flooding at this time of year, is there? No, and, and the rain's been light. It's just they're being annoying and misty. Right. So, <laughs> right. um, but it doesn't seem to be dampering the mood too much as far as the uh, the book fair goes. Okay, good, good. Now, is is this like a, a huge event? Are, we, are you in a, a giant conference center yeah, very much so. I mean, it is um, it is really the biggest children's fair of the year. It's really the only one that's that's fully devoted to children's books. There are, of course, other big book shows for the trade and for the industry. Um, there's ones in Frankfurt and London, and there's um, Book Expo America in New York. But this one is the only one that's really exclusively about children's books. And uh, there are over 1,200 um, exhibitors from 75 countries around the world. It's just people coming from all over to basically negotiate deals. It's all about um, publishers coming together with agents and sort of meeting other publishers and um, those who control foreign rights and basically selling their books into each other's territories. So for our listeners uh, out there who either have been to Bologna before or might have never been, can you just describe a little bit where the conference is? Is it uh, you know the center of Bologna, a little bit out? And um, what does it look like? Sure. Well, the uh, the town itself, the, the downtown is quite beautiful. Lots of sort of uh, you know, the cobblestone roads you might expect, and you know, gorgeous old buildings. However, the, the the conference itself is a little bit outside the city. It's certainly walkable. I walk there from my hotel in the morning, oh, wow. but it's at a, in a much more sort of giant, modern sort of event space. It's very much a trade show. It's not unlike the the Javits Center in New York City. So it's a sure. big industrial space that sort of gets taken over once a year for the uh, for this show, which um, is actually celebrating its uh, 50th anniversary this year. So it, it's been it's been around for a while, and it's uh, really again the preeminent sort of event for for children's books in the year. And um, what are some big books that are getting buzz right now? What's being talked about? Well, you know, I've been uh, sort of walking uh, walking the aisles of the fair for the last few days, and talking to agents and editors and rights managers, things like that. There don't there don't seem to be some, some years you'll get a real sort of big book of the show that everybody's sort of gravitating for. We're not seeing too much of that this year, but there are a couple that are definitely getting some attention. One is from uh, Puffin in the UK, which is part of Penguin. Uh, they have a book called Half Bad, um, which is a, a young adult novel, and it involves, uh, it's sort of set in the modern world, but it involves uh, different, uh, I guess, uh, different sides of witches. There's uh, these black and white factions of witches. And oh. so that's one book that's certainly been getting some attention. And, and is that is that out already, or is this no, a book that's, that's coming that's out? No, that's not out, and I don't believe it's going to be out for a while. In fact, it was just really acquired. It's a, it's a debut novelist, uh, the novelist uh, Sally Green, um, and I believe the, the editor who acquired it, uh, Ben Horlson, is actually fairly new to Puffin himself. And this is, again, the, the U.K. version of uh, Penguin. 
so it, it's not yet. I don't know that a pub season has been determined, and in, in the U.S. sales rights haven't even been settled yet. I believe they're at auction at the moment. So that's still sort of up in the air, and we're waiting to see if that gets settled in the next uh, couple of days if they're going to announce uh, who the U.S. publisher is going to be. And beyond that, you know, in speaking to different uh, folks around the fair, it definitely seems that there's definitely a move away from sort of the, the paranormal and the dystopian fiction that we've seen a lot of in the last few years. Um, oh, really? There seems to be a swing back this year to more realistic fiction, um, mm-hmm. sort of minus all the sort of paranormal trappings a little bit. Um, there also seems to be strong interest in thrillers. And also for middle grade, which is uh, books aimed at more of an elementary school audience, some, some of the editors I spoke to said that um, they were hearing that other foreign publishers were just sort of full up on YA at the moment and really looking for some quality stuff for slightly younger readers and teens. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And right now we're talking with PW Children's Book Reviews editor John Sellers, and he's calling us from the Bologna Children's Book Fair. And uh, you say that you've heard that interest in YA literature has kind of fallen, as, as also with dystopian literature. Has any of the editors or anyone there discussed why that might be, or do you know why that might be? Um, the sense that I'm getting is that it's just that um, because it is so, such a popular um, category, meaning YA, and that, that dystopia has been fairly popular for the last couple of years, that a lot of houses have just acquired a ton of it and they just need something else you know, for their catalogs, um, especially if we're talking about um, some of the foreign houses that maybe are a bit on the smaller side. You know, they can only acquire so much, and if they've already acquired a couple of vampire novels and a couple uh, post-apocalyptic dystopias in the past few years, I think it's about maybe rounding out their lists a bit. And similarly, that's why they may try to get something in there for younger readers as well, just to sort of, I think, have, a, again, a, a more rounded uh, list overall. Mm-hmm. So we're, we, it sounds like people are sort of moving away from being super specialized and more into trying to draw a, a broader audience. Is that, does that sound right? Well, I think it depends publisher to publisher, but I think whether you're, I mean, some, some of the small publishers just do one thing and they do it really well. You know, I, um, one of the the winners of the Bolt Prize was uh, an Indian publisher named Tara, and they do really, you know, uh, really, they basically just do picture books, and all of the artwork is actually done by, um, it's very traditional artwork from uh, artisans, you know, in different regions of India, and you know, they're they're not looking to go all across the uh, the board and, and have a really general list, but I do think that, you know, if you're, I mean, publishing is a business, and you, you, you know, mm-hmm. if, if all you publish is why a dystopia. A, you know, you're not going to be really well set up when that trend, you know, maybe recedes a bit, and you know, there's only so much you can draw attention to if if your stuff is all that similar. So I think, you know, publishers are cautious and they want to have a well-rounded, well-rounded uh, list. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, where we're talking with PW Children's Book Reviews editor John Sellers about the Bologna Children's Book Fair going on right now. So tell us a little bit about the Tools of Change conference that was happening there on, on Monday. What, what was being discussed at that? Sure. Well, that was, it was actually Sunday, and it was the day before the fair opened. And, and mm-hmm. uh, it's the third anniversary of the, the Tools of Change conference, which is very much a, a technology-focused sort of mini-conference that has been paired uh, up with this show and, and other shows around the world. I mean, they, they Tools of Change hosts you know, numerous uh, tech-related uh, shows uh, worldwide. Um, the, the one here in Bologna, of course, is, has a very big children's focus. And it's a day-long tech conference. And um, it was uh, pretty interesting this year. And uh, one of, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, branding and brand strategy. There's a lot of talk about sort of trying to develop authors into brands even. Um, 
and also about sort of um, empowerment of both consumers and authors and kids. Um, on the empowered author side, um, one of the themes was, or one of the ideas was that um, authors who both traditionally publish, that is, they publish, uh, you know, they, they get a deal with a big house, and authors who um, self-publish. If, if you're an author who, who does both, uh, some of the, the figures out there is that you, they're actually outperforming both their um, traditionally published colleagues as well as those who only uh, self-publish. Hmm. So that was a sort of interesting uh, thing that came up during the, the conference. And when you um, talk another, about you know, it, when you talk about branding authors, what what is what does that mean to readers? Does that mean that that they see their authors on tour more often? Does that mean that they get you know endless emails in their inboxes, you know, promoting an author like any other company? What does that mean? Well, it, it can depend. I mean, I think one example that um, uh, that was used uh, in one of the presentations that I saw, and one that would certainly be very familiar to a lot of authors, would be the author John Green, who's a very uh, popular mm-hmm. white author. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, he really is a brand at this point. He's got an enormous Twitter following. He has long-running web series on YouTube, multiple web series on YouTube. Um, he's active on Tumblr. You know, he he's just very um, very visible. And even um, in this past year, he's done these major um, uh, live events, both in the U.S. and abroad, um, tied to his most recent book, *The Fault in Our Stars*, which came out last year. And he's just extremely visible. But he he also does it in a way that doesn't feel artificial. It feels very authentic. He just has, has developed, I think, through time and effort and energy, a very large following and being able to sort of extend who he is beyond just a name on a book into a person that people know and, uh, and recognize and, and follow, even if, you know, in different ways. In fact, even recently, he did a, uh, a Google Hangout with uh, President Obama, just to give you a sort of Yes, I saw that. Just how, you know, how sort of big he's sort of become. So, and and he and he got Obama to say his catchphrase. Don't forget to be awesome. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> I was I was, I was very impressed. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah. So uh, one of the other things uh, at TOC, they talked a lot about um, you know book sales overall globally. And uh, my understanding is that you know uh, sales are sort of uh, slumping in in especially sort of in Western markets. Mm-hmm. But that there is a lot of energy coming out of. Uh, out of Asia, um, I believe in India, particularly, saw um, in this past year a 16% jump. 16, that is, uh, mm-hmm. percent jump in uh, in sales, and wow. 12% um, for children. Um, but even that is the case. Is the case um, children's book sales are a little bit uh, less dire. They, they're always a little bit more recession-proof, and they mm-hmm. uh, they are. While they may sales may have uh, slowed there as well, it's not as uh, the declines are not nearly as drastic as they are on the adult side. And we've been talking a little bit about YA books and uh, and some children's books. What about picture books? How 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 are they showing at the uh, Bologna Book Festival? Well, that's actually one of the interesting aspects of the fair. So one uh, one thing that I hadn't mentioned is that one thing that you'll see when you walk around the fair, you know, going up and down the halls, through all yeah, yeah. past all the publisher stands, is you will see everywhere illustrators um, carrying around their portfolios and. Many of the oh, publishers wow. and agents and things like that will, will set up these um, time periods where they will review portfolios from um, prospective illustrators, you know, maybe uh, folks who are just starting out hoping to break into the publishing world with their art. And mm-hmm. you'll see these long, long lines of kids with their stacks portfolios um, just waiting and waiting to be, uh, have their stuff reviewed and, and hoping to maybe make the right connection that could get them uh, a book deal down the road. So there's definitely a big emphasis on art. Um, when you walk into the main hall of the 
uh, of the fair is a huge, huge um, display of different artwork from uh, different illustrators from around the world. And uh, one of the other words that I forgot to mention is that they, they always announce the, uh, or they often announce the Astrid Lindgren uh, Memorial Prize each year, mm-hmm. which is, I think, one of the monetarily one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, children's book prize of the year. She, she was the creator of Pippi Longstocking. Uh, correct. Astrid Lindgren yeah. was, yeah. And it's a, it's a Swedish uh, uh, award in its origins. And it's actually announced live from uh, Lindgren's hometown in Sweden. Um, oh, wow. And it's broadcast live. And we watched uh, the live broadcast uh, at the fair. Hundreds of people did. Um, and this year it went mm-hmm. to uh, Isol, who is uh, an Argentinian uh, uh, illustrator who's wonderful. And she's done several dozen books, um, many of which have come over to the U.S. So a big emphasis on art and uh, picture books throughout, and they're, they're always a popular thing. And I spoke to several editors who love coming to the fair specifically so they can sort of introduce themselves to author or to illustrators, rather, who they have no experience with, who they've never seen or heard of before, you know, whether it's from Finland or Korea or um, Russia or anywhere else. I mean, you, you see illustrators in every sort of style, and it's, uh, it's really cool. I mean, artwork definitely gets uh, a lot of prominence at the fair, probably because it is so visual and something that you want to you know, cover your stand with and draw people in about this. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Children's Book Reviews editor John Sellers, who's telling us about picture books at the Bologna Children's Book Fair. Now, I'd always thought that somehow authors and illustrators created their books together, that they were a team from the very beginning, but it sounds like that's not so much the case, that they that maybe publishers do a bit of matchmaking. How does, how does that work? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, it really can depend on the, uh, on the situation and, and the author and the story, but yeah, oftentimes it is the publisher who might get a, a picture book manuscript, say, from an agent, and that may not be very long. That might be, we're talking like, you know, a couple pieces of uh, eight and a half by 11, because there's not often a lot of text when it comes to picture books. Right. And, you know, it's really up to them to, in a lot of cases, to try to come up with who might be the best illustrator to sort of bring this story to life, and it might be someone they've worked with in the past. Um, oftentimes, I know agents will, of course, be happy to suggest an illustrator from their own stable that they might want to pair with that project. But again, you, with, with shows like this, you can really get exposure to a lot of different talents, and especially new and upcoming talent as well. So it is definitely a matchmaking process in a lot of cases. Now, I have to go off topic just for a moment, John. And, and you know, we're talking about this, this great book fair in Bologna, but we are also talking about Bologna. And I, I have to say, how, how's the eating there? How's the eating at the conference? I mean, I, I, I certainly can't complain. Uh, you know, I've had some, <laughs> some really wonderful meals. Uh, I found a, um, a sort of a favorite pizza spot last year, so I had to make a, re- a return trip there for uh, some pizza with uh, prosciutto and artichokes and mushrooms, and that was uh, pretty wonderful. And wow. I mean, e- even at the trade show itself, it's kind of uh, hilarious because, you know, a lot of us have been to sort of conventions and trade shows before, and in the U.S., you know, the, the dining options are uh, perhaps a little limited. Pathetic. Um, here, pathetic. Yeah, but here, you know, with, with all, in every single hall, there's at least two espresso stands where you can sort of get a little pick-me-up and maybe a panini with uh, prosciutto. I mean, th- this is at the fair itself. We're not even talking about all the trattorias and, and lovely restaurants in town. Um, mm. Even at the fair, you can get, you know, a little, a little bit of wine or a little espresso to sort of uh, help you through the afternoon. So um, the food, you know, we're very lucky to have... Uh, Bologna be the, the site for this big children's book event. I, I mean, I'm sure uh, people, you know, if you're at the London London Book Fair, mm-hmm. you can do fine. Frankfurt, you know, I don't know. But 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, right. we're very lucky to be having this in Bologna. I've had some wonderful pasta. I could pretty much eat pasta for every meal, but I'm here and be uh, very happy. And John, how many more days are you there? How long is the book festival? Well, tomorrow's the last day of the show, and it's actually an abbreviated oh. day. It's, it's, a, it's a half day. It's gone by very quickly, and it's been very busy. Uh, I think I've worn through just about all of my shoes in the process. But, <laughs> right, uh, sure, sure. Yeah. Well, but, uh, well, John, thank you so much for that tour of the fair. Absolutely. Uh, happy to do it. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwkly radio on Twitter. We would love to hear from you. Tune in next week for more exciting book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.